0: You're listening to Unraveling Rachel. This podcast is all about this journey that we call life and how we can live it more authentically so that it sucks less and feels better. Sounds good, huh? Hello there, my friends. It is June 17th that I am recording this. Um, It's been a little bit since I've recorded an episode And, um, last, I think that I did one, I was talking about, um, writing and coronavirus and, you know, I've been really grateful for this time of healing and the world's kind of been freaking out. And since then we've seen, um, the most senseless, most violent death that we have seen yet. And at least in my lifetime that I remember being very present to and conscious of of the death of a black man at the hands of police officers and it's just set the world on fire I think you'd have to have been living under a rock or away at a um, three-month silent meditation retreat to miss what's been going on there um, and it's It's hit me heavily, um, which it's, I recognize, I, 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 okay, I, I want to kind of backtrack a little here, um, I have anxiety about recording this, even though, um, I really believe it's something that needs to be spoken about, and, um, that I think there is a, a need for, um, it to be talked about by white women. I also recognize that as a white woman I have incredible privilege um, that this doesn't affect me the same way that it does the black community. Um, these are things that I am learning about. Things that I haven't always been willing to learn about. Things that it's been easier to turn a blind eye to. Especially when feeling like there's already so much to deal with in my own life and the weight of my own trauma and struggles and I I recognize that it's a privilege to be able to be selfish in that way and I want to hopefully say to have been selfish in that way though I will continue to um, care for myself because I, I recognize that um, getting super stressed out About everything else going on. um, It's like that putting your own oxygen mask on first. Um, I've got to be well before I can do well for others. Me being sick or stressed is not going to alleviate anyone else's um, sickness or stress for... in the long run for as, as much impact as it could if I'm well. I hope that made sense. Um, I am sitting here in my dark closet today um, trying to sort this out all um, verbally. I have tried sitting down to write about it with some success. I've tried to outline succinct episodes um, to come and, and talk about, but... What really feels most natural is just sitting down and getting into the flow, um, like we were having a chat over coffee, Um, except for I don't have any coffee here with me, but I hope that you do as you are listening. So, um, the, (laughs) where to start? I don't know where to start, and so I'm saying that I don't know where to start. And I think that that is actually a great and powerful place to start because I don't know can be very, very hard for many of us to say, I don't know, I don't understand, I don't know what it's like. And to feel helpless or powerless is not a place that our human egos like to be. Um, it's, it's especially, I think, for women, um, and I don't know if this is just white women. This is the experience that I'm coming from, though. As a white woman, I feel like there is as uh, much easier to have an answer, to know how to help, and to be... A caretaker um, and to tend to responsibilities but responsibilities that are for everyone else not necessarily for ourselves and for what's like really true in our souls and in our um, hearts not just like what's good for us in the way that it will allow us to be seen as a good woman and a good caretaker and like I'm really into the personal development space and I I follow a lot of people and there's been so much controversy I think in that space around how women have reacted white women have reacted to this there's been spiritual bypassing, which is saying that, like, you know, all lives matter, or just love and light, and don't be mad, and, you know, don't, don't let your anger um, get in the way of the cause. Um, it, that rioting is not the right way to make change. Protesting isn't the right way to make change. All of this control over the way that other people handle their emotions and um especially when it comes to like that fiery anger and rage and I think that that fiery anger and rage gets um pushed aside a lot in the spiritual community it gets pressed down it's not seen as high vibration and that is something that has always really pissed me off and I think kept me from really getting into it, Um, and as I am in my own healing journey and understanding more about the, the way that my own rage and my own strong feelings were suppressed growing up. I don't know, suppressed, the right word? Suppressed, repressed, oppressed, whatever. They were pressed. Pressed down. First, by an outside force that wasn't me, you know, children naturally express. Expression has been a huge motivator for me in doing this podcast, Um, getting it out, getting the feelings out instead of holding it in and the, the oppression, repression, suppression of the big emotions, um, came from people who are not comfortable with those big emotions and this way of growing up with people, with caretakers in a society that they also learned from that keeping it in is better. It's good. You keep things calm. Um, you know, like I was, I was too much growing up. I see this in, um, I see this in my, um, my niece. (laughs) Um, she's spicy. She's too much. She's this and that, but she's just, she's a little human with these big experiences that need to be heard and seen and held. And, um, so through my own healing, I'm seeing, where there's still this little child in me that needs to be heard and seen and held. And I've gotten a little bit um, off track. Um, this is probably going to be a bit of a long episode, so just buckle up. I'm going to try and try and keep it as short as I can. But again, this is kind of like a little uh, window into my brain and into my processing, which... Has been like really overwhelmed lately And I I think that A lot of people can probably identify With that so Anyway um, there's been a lot of Control put on how other people Are acting which mirrors the Control that was put on us When we were young And just like The bigger picture here um, Is Is trauma Is not having Space for our human experience and not recognizing how we are not holding space for other people to have their own human experience and how um our actions that are learned when we're young our ways of being um prevent us from really living fully and wholly and healthfully and lovingly um And it it really, it affects us so directly, um, and it affects other people. So I've seen a lot of, um, well, I'll say that there was a time when I would say I wasn't racist. And outwardly, did I believe in equality and did I believe that, um, we're all the same really on the inside that we're all human yeah absolutely but in my mind I had I have I still have learned ways of being and these beliefs that I don't really know are there some I've just uncovered and you know I'm constantly now like I'm more tuned into them um, I say const, I, so I sort of say i'm I'm constantly looking for limiting beliefs in my subconscious. And that's been true for a few years now where I'm looking at this, and it's really hard to do. And um recent events have brought me to looking at beliefs I have about race and people and skin color, ethnicity, all of that, and how it factors into how I operate in life. Um, and It's, it was easier for me to start looking at those things in areas of, like, self-worth and career and money and relationships, like, romantic relationships and family stuff, um, because that's so immediate, immediate to my experience, and I think that, um, that's pretty human, for what is immediate to our experience to be the most important to us because it's all about survival. Um, but it's important to start branching out past those things and into um, beliefs that affect those around me and in, in, in our communities because our communities need to be healthy We need to be healthy, and our communities need to be healthy. And I, as someone who wants to see a healthier, happier, more peaceful and loving world, I recognize that I have to do this inner work at all levels. And some days, um, there are only going to be certain levels that I can muster. I've had a few days this week where I... Like, I had my scans coming up. Uh, I had to prep for that, and I had to wait for those results. And that was, like, my focus, taking care of myself and recognizing the fearful thoughts that came up and working to replace those and see where, where some of those thought patterns are broken and allow myself to rest and take care of myself um, and trust that, you know, that's okay and recognize that I am in a privileged place to be able to do that. I'm lucky and I am so grateful and I I didn't just sit around watching Netflix in that time, though it would have been okay if I did. Um, I've been working through my own healing stuff so I took time out to do some of the somatic sensory exercises that I learned in I realized smart body smart mind I spent time with Graham in nature took walks I nourished myself well and also indulged a little I uh, also spent a lot of time listening um to uh, voices on healing trauma though um, I did spend a, a good amount of time in the that week of amplifying melanated voices listening to um, black voices and um, a lot of it was black voices talking with white voices and I'm going to talk more about that later I don't want this to be a, like, a two hour long episode but in that time of rest. I've also been reading a book that's been really powerful. It's called, um, The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch. And this is a book that, um, I almost bought probably 10 years ago. Um, when it first came out, I was traveling a lot for work and I'd always buy a book at the airport. And I would say that's around the time when I really get like, got into like, or started getting into more of like, how does our brain work? And I I started getting really interested in, um, acupuncture. I even looked at going to acupuncture schools, um, around then. Actually, I think it was in 2011 or 2012 when that happened. Um, but I recognize (laughs) the book. Um, and then Irene Lyon mentioned it and, And then I saw another friend was reading it, another friend who I met at C school with Jess Lively, um, who's into meditation and, um, you know, how we can leverage our consciousness to live a better life and to create a life that we want. And so I picked this book up and I have been obsessed with it. It's so good. It's so, um... So well-written, told through story, which I find is one of the best ways to learn because, I mean, as humans, we're programmed to learn by story. I think it comes from all those hundreds of years sitting around a campfire, you know, pre-writing, pre-printing, when this is the way that we had to learn. We had to learn how... Uh, when moral values were communicated via story, when, um, survival, um, was communicated via story. Uh, and it activates our, um, it activates our, our very uniquely human ventral vagal system, our social engagement system, part of, um, the, uh, polyvagal theory that that's like that's what makes us uniquely human from other animals I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole but um, just that's just a little interesting thing uh, about story I think um, and why we enjoy reading books that are so personal and listening to podcasts that are personal uh, having those intimate chats over coffee Because we really then feel this connection that we have with other people. And so uh, this book is told through story, which makes it easy to learn. And also exciting because in this, instead of just talking about the brain and its power of changing and what neuroplasticity means... um, Norman Deutsch, the author, tells it through the stories of the researchers doing the work, um, the the beliefs that they held, the challenges that they faced in science, and the stories of the people or the the animals that uh, were uh, in these research studies, and how how incredible and life changing some of the results have been and how like mind-bending, literally, some of the results have been. Um, I think most of us, many of us, don't really know how our brain works. (laughs) Like we get some basic education on it in school and we know that like the spinal cord's important and that we have like this primal brain and this more evolved brain and i mean just because i've read a few books on it like i'm not i'm not an expert by any means but i uh, i do feel very empowered to have some of this understanding and excited to learn more because i think it's really an important part of change and of, of real transformation and of real healing both for me on an individual physical and mental, emotional, like psychic consciousness level. And then, um, for anyone else, um, who wants to see change in the world, to understand how the brain works, to understand how we can influence change at a greater level, um, for our behaviors and for our physical body and how those two are not as disconnected as we tend to think that they are in our Western way of being. And so the powerful things that have come for me from this this book is um, realizing just how plastic our brain is Plastic is a term used to mean able to change. So neuroplasticity, the ability for the brain to um, to rewire and learn new things, um, and how how it already how it does that naturally, like as we're children and as we learn, as we move on the ground as babies, our body, our brains build a map of the body through how we interact with our environment. And our brains build a map for our behavior based on how we interact with our outer environment and how our needs are met, how our actions are met, how our impulses are cared for and all of that. And and it's, we don't really have a filter on that until we're older. And so that's how things get in us that are like certain, you know, habitual ways of sitting that in posture that we maybe don't recognize that we choose, um, ways of relating to people that are just like natural. Um, and then ways of, um, perceiving the world. And that's where our, racist beliefs can come in, our, our biases, our, our prejudices that we don't know are there because we've maybe never, um, you know, done something that we would think is overtly or consciously racist. Like I've never called anyone the N word, but I've, I've crossed the street not wanting to, you know, be on the same side of the road as a group of black men. Um, and I have, uh, I have admired the way that a black woman speaks, thinking, oh, wow, you speak really well. And that is like this assumption that she wouldn't just because of the color of her skin. And and wanting her to be, speak more like me for my own comfort. It's very, um, insidious, the little things that are alive in there. And I know that that comes from not, not really being exposed The things that my parents said, uh, about black people growing up. I've definitely heard my dad, um, use the N word. Uh, I've seen some of his sort of subtle racism come through. Um, when, I, I, when I moved to California, um, well, so I'll say where I grew up, Niles, Ohio, <laughs> very white. Um, I think there were a few black kids in our school. You know, I can like name maybe three and maybe four, (laughs) like I really have to think about it. Um, Asian kids? No, I think there were two girls in junior high, uh, two Japanese girls, like exchange students, or maybe they moved to the area. I recall they got made fun of. I don't think that they were in school for very long. I don't know what happened to them, Um, but it was just, yeah, it was very white even when I went to my first year of college, it was very white. And then my second year of college at Youngstown state, I would imagine there were probably more, there was more diversity, but I don't recall because my circle wasn't diverse. And I have not felt like I connect into black communities. Um, I definitely can recognize where I am uncomfortable. And I've I've been in some of those situations, um, like even (laughs) my sister's wedding, um, her husband is a black man. So my niece is half white, half black. And um, there was like not a lot of mixing, I think, between our family and theirs, which looking back, I don't think was because we didn't or I can only speak on my part it wasn't out of fear it wasn't out of a judgment it was just out of a almost like habitual and just comfort and so um given a situation like that now i would be like i recognize my actions that I've taken out of comfort and how that really limits my experience of the world. It potentially hurts other people who I have no intent of hurting, though intent is different from impact. Um, and I wouldn't want that. So I, I've really been valuing, you know, compassion, commitment and curiosity over this last year those have been my 3 Cs and and um I think I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to add a fourth C there that I want to ditch and that is comfort and uh being curious I think can often mean moving out of our comfort uh moving out of our comfort is required for curiosity, perhaps, is a a better way to say it. So, um, where was I going with that? So, I don't know some of the things that live in my brain. I don't know some of the the beliefs and how they got there. I may never know exactly how they got there, um, but through conversation and learning, um, I am um, uh, uncovering them and w- being willing to explore them and um, and be okay with how they may not make me good when they do come up. Um, because I realize that there are things far more important than my comfort. Human lives, will always be more important than my comfort. Um, so another thing in this book, is, you know, this neuroplasticity that I'm talking about, how it influences how our beliefs and biases and our behaviors get there. Um, and then it also um, has there's plasticity is responsible for healing. And even though our brains are more um, malleable when we're children, there's still potential for us to learn when we're adults, obviously, right? Like we, we can learn. It's harder. Like it's harder for us to learn a language now than it would have been when we were kids. Um, but it's not impossible Um, our brains our brains are really crazy cool Um, I kind of lost track of where I was going with that but then I closed my eyes to try and refocus myself this is something that I learned through the book there's a reason that I want to sit down in a dark room and talk through these things. Um, and it helps me stay on, on track. Um, I mean, it didn't like say this exactly in the book, but, um, more like the stories of the research were, um, when they blindfolded people, like pure blindfolded, could not see anything, absolutely no visual stimulation. And Um, They had to learn how to navigate like they were blind. This was to um, help teachers of blind people, I think, to have an understanding of what it's like to live without visual perception. Um, It was a very short amount of time for um, their brains to start to use their visual cortex to process sensory input from their touch and also from sound how sound sounds in an environment like you know if you're in a really empty room and it echoes that tells us something about the texture of the room and what's in the room And, and and so we because we might have i'm going to say we assuming that you have visual acuity and and your sense of hearing and all of that don't rely on that as much as someone who doesn't have vision because we can see that a room's empty we can we can touch we can all of that um but if you don't have that vision the sound tells you something about the shape of the room um like I'm sitting in my closet recording so that there isn't, you can't hear the shape of the room that I'm in. Um, It's a soft shape. It's a shape that you wouldn't know. But if I was in my bathroom, you might be like, wow, it sounds like she's in the bathroom. Um, So anyway, they saw that their visual cortex was now being used to process other sensory inputs. So I have uh, for a lot of my life, um, most of my life that I can remember been very easily overwhelmed by a lot of sensory input. Um, if I'm in a really busy place with a lot going on, I find it hard to focus on a conversation that's right there in front of me or on what's going on. Um, I don't have a hard time in that environment focusing on food, which is something that I just realized (laughs) and probably is significant for reasons. Um, But it's like, I think from what I'm understanding with the way that our body works on like a survival level, It's because I'm constantly on alert, looking for something to happen, so I can't focus um, on the task at hand. Um, So that's something I think that where trauma plays into ADD. If someone's in like their survival response, they can't focus on things; they're looking around for something outside. You know, I grew up in a a chaotic environment. Um, Fights, and it was important for me to be able to hear what was going on in my house. I can remember sitting at the top of our stairs in the home I grew up in and trying to listen to what my parents were saying to know what was going on. Um, And to this day, if I can hear someone's talking in another room, my brain is like, listen, listen, listen. And I cannot focus on what's going on. I have to put in headphones um, and and play, usually electronic music that has repetition and no words. Um, or just really ambient music. Um, coffee shops can be really good for me or nature. Until there's someone talking at a level that I can, that my brain is like, okay, we can begin to discern their words. And then I'm like, ugh, I can't. I'm so distracted. Um, So it's all this like survival stuff. So when I come in to my closet to sit down, close my eyes in the dark, and talk through my thoughts get the thoughts out I feel like in a way I'm freeing I'm able to really tune in and free this stuff that lives inside of me I don't have distraction of outside voices in the dark I don't have distraction of what's going on around me and when I close my eyes and it's even darker like I am more able to stay on track with those thoughts. And I'd be really curious, like, is my brain like quieted enough then that this stuff becomes clear. So there's no noise that it's processing. Are other areas of my brain even being activated, like recruited? Um, I don't know. Probably not, I would guess. like I think that those those things have to be like in those studies in the book, um, there's a certain time requirement that is needed for the brain to actually begin undergoing those changes. but it's not like super, super long. I think it's it can be it can start happening in a couple of hours. like um, with with stroke patients, this is one of the stories that really got me, with stroke patients who have lost their ability to move a certain part of their body, they, um, you know, people, like, if you couldn't use your left arm and your right is easier, we kind of do this anyway with our dominant arms, right? We, we tend towards that and we, you know, we wouldn't use the other arm. So in stroke patients, um, they, they found that if they took away use of the dominant arm of the good arm quote unquote good arm well-functioning arm and they immobilized it and started giving stroke patients really basic tasks as simple as like reaching out to pick something up um that if they couldn't use that right arm they were more likely to be able to try to use the left arm because like the body wants to heal, the body wants to live. Um, and they give, they, they would do like basic tasks, like school, like child, like toddler learning tasks, like picking up the right block, the circle to put in the circle hole or picking, sorting out coins from, I don't know, marbles and putting those in like the piggy bank to help retrain the brain and like after like being in that, I think they call it, um, constraint therapy, C I actually, I believe was the, the term, but I forget what the I stands for. But, um, they started to show that like, the, the motor maps in the brain where those unused limbs were that had atrophied and shrunk started to grow again and have activity. And that the longer that patient spent doing these exercises, like for hours a day, or sometimes for like two, two weeks intensively, um, they they got better really fast they were able to regain movement that some doctors were like oh you'll never gain again because they retrained the brain um i found this really really amazing and hopeful for me personally with my body and and seeing how sometimes I go into these thought patterns of like, "Oh, my digestive system's broken and da 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 da," and I was like, "What if I could believe that it's better that it's functioning well that it's that it's really like healthy, even though I'm missing some things, it's healthy, like the organs that are left there, they can do it um Maybe then, they will. Um, and I know it probably seems like I'm making some crazy jumps there, but um, there was another part of the book that talks about amputees and phantom limbs, and that the feelings that that amputees get in phantom limbs are very, very real, very real. Um, because once those limbs are gone, there's still like a motor map in the brain of where that limb was. And so it can, like a feeling can get stuck there. So there's this brilliant, um, neuroplastician that, uh, is at UCSD or was, I don't know if he still is actually. Um, and he did this mirror box thing where he had like, like, I forget the actual example, so I'm kind of making it up, but I think a guy ha- was missing an arm and they put him in this box um, and then um, he moved his other arm and could feel the motion in the arm that wasn't there. So the brain thought it was seeing something. It believed that it was seeing the right arm moving, so it felt the right arm moving. and. This is like one of those big things in um, that I've encountered in personal development and in this like consciousness uh, hacking understanding world of like you don't have to see it or see it to believe it. you can believe it to see it so, or, or it I mean it works both ways. I guess is really what'm I'm, I'm saying. you know, they, in this case of the amputee they saw it and the brain believed it um and something interesting in the uh, stroke patient bit is that just thinking about moving their arm um caused activity in the brain um and there are other experiments where like they've learned to like train rats to like press the lever, and get their sugar water. Um, and then they took... I forget exactly how the experiment was conde- like structured. But essentially, they ended up taking the lever away um, or something. But when the rat thought the thought of pressing the lever... Because there was always like this thinking of pressing the lever before they actually press the lever which is something that we all do but we're so like fluid in our motions that we miss it and that's something that irene's course and slowing down she has us recognize the moment before we even move the leg because there's an impulse there of how we're going to do it or how we're going to move the arm or the direction that we want to look, um, we're just so fast-paced and conditioned and habitual in our ways that we don't know it. So with the rat, I don't, you know, I don't know if the rat <laughs> realized it either, but the scientists did, and the scientists were able to know to recognize when the rat was thinking about pressing the lever and giving it a reward. So the rat would then, the rat learned to sit, have the thought about pressing the lever, not actually go and press the lever and get the water. Is your mind blown? (laughs) I think it's so crazy. It's so cool. And it's really helpful in all of the things that, I'm going through right now as an individual and I think that our world is going through right now as a collective and that we're all experiencing as individuals because we have the ability to change. It's not our fault. Some of the things that are put into us, Um, I forget who I heard say it, but trauma, I'm gonna gonna try and, and rephrase this, trauma in an individual is is our pers- forms personality trauma in a family forms our family traits and trauma in society forms our culture trauma in community forms our culture and so there's a lot of trauma in me as an individual in my family um, we all have similar traits that are at the root from trauma. And also in all of the communities that I'm a part of, there's different trauma in my cancer community. There's different trauma in my spiritual community, in my music community, in my white woman community. And then in my San Diego community, Everyone, everyone's bringing in all their individual family and um, community trauma whatever communities that they're a part of and um, we all come together and make this world so (laughs) such a long-winded way of getting around to the power to heal and to change the world is within each one of us and within our brains and we all have our own unique work to do but we influence one another Um, and right now we have uh, the responsibility to tend to our trauma is even greater and the responsibility to tend to the trauma of black communities is really big because they've suffered so much at the um, they've suffered so much at the hands of white trauma passed on. Um, And I I say that because I think that the way that um, white supremacy comes out through me is... I know, I know personally that it's not conscious. I know that it also comes from a place of trauma in me. And that's something that in like the psychology trauma healing world is recognized that the trauma in us that we don't deal with, that we don't heal, we perpetuate, we project out into the world. You know, that's why I like... People who are uh, child abusers were are often people who were abused as children. People who were sexu- who abuse others sexually experienced abuse themselves. Like it gets passed down until it's healed, and so um, we all have a responsibility to start healing trauma right now and to see how we can, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been speaking a lot and I have not had enough water. So this is a sign that I'm going to wrap it up because I do want to keep it under an hour. But I want to get back to what I said that um, in light of everything that's happened, I still believe what I believed before that healing our own trauma is how we heal the world. It also means showing up in our communities and becoming socially active and um, voting and um, doing things like systemic change of defunding the police and having better social support systems. Um, But all of that, I think requires enough people to see in themselves and to have these beliefs that they're necessary, um, and that, um, and to really believe in change, um, for these things to happen. Um, and so, uh, I think white people, we've got a lot of work to do. We have so much work to do. I had um, a moment of recognizing how um, white male supremacy was a disservice to me, lives in me, and and that I actively um, like (sighs) hurt my own health on my health journey through the beliefs that I have about what it means to be a good white woman. And not wanting to um, be too much. And that was a really... Uh, it's something that I'm still processing, I think, so I'm not going to talk about it too much, But it helped me see how like insidious these beliefs are that live inside of us. And um, I will share that soon because, um, I think that, again, going back to the power of story, when we hear other people's stories and see how things unfold for them, we can maybe see our own stories in different ways. So, um, this was a long episode. Um, I still (laughs) don't, have answers to like, um, what to do exactly other than to, to keep learning and to keep sharing and to be okay with being like, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm learning. And what I do know is my experience and that's what I sat down to share with you today and um I hope that you are learning through your experience too and I hope that we can all be more comfortable with saying I don't know or um I don't know but I'm willing to learn or I'm sorry for that I see how I hurt you and like, then be willing to do better because the, the best apology is change behavior. The worst apology is the one that we give because we want to stay good, (laughs) which there's so much of that out there right now. Oh, I'm so sorry, but I would never, I hope you know that my heart is good. I am a good person. I hope you see that like that's not that's more self-protection and that's more I think uh living in our own trauma responses um so yeah if you want to learn more about trauma and healing trauma go check out Irene Lyon's work if you want to learn more about trauma and racism check out Resmaa Menakem um I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh he is a colleague of Irene's and he does work about um black bodies and like white body supremacy, which is something that I am beginning to learn about and finding very fascinating because um it is so so real and um I personally am a victim of it. And basically if you are a body in the U S you are a victim of it. Mostly if you're anything more than a white male body, though I do think it's there for white male bodies too, but we just tend to see it more on female bodies. Um, so instead of continuing to ramble on about all of this, which I could do, um, I hope you're learning and listening and taking good care of yourself. Um, And I will be back soon with, um, some more of my story to, to share. And I would love to, to hear anyone's thoughts on this. Um, all right. Lots of love to you all. Take care. Follow me on Instagram. I share more there. Um, I haven't been sharing lately because of, uh, just everything going on. Part of my process. Um, but yeah, health updates and stuff come through there often. Um, I have my, my one-year scans were clean. So that's something that I shared there that I don't think I shared in this episode, but, um, something that I'm very relieved about and having that information allows me to now move forward and talk about and process these other things. So, um, All right, once again, lots of love to you, take care, and